I'm John Banther, and this is Classical Breakdown. From Classical WETA in Washington, we take you behind the music. In this episode, I'm joined by Classical WETA's Linda Carducci, and we're breaking down one of the most popular works in classical music, Nikolai Rimsky-Korsakov's Scheherazade. We take a look at the backstory of the brave heroine Scheherazade, and with musical examples, we go through this masterpiece and let our imaginations run wild. Okay, Linda, Scheherazade for so many classical music lovers is like at the top of the favorites list. How does it rank for you? I consider it to be one of the more exciting of symphonic poems, and I know it's technically designed as a symphonic suite, but it is in the form and the tradition of a symphonic poem, which is an orchestral work that um, illustrates or evokes a literary source or a painting or a poem or sometimes a person. I think as far as excitement, I would hold Scheherazade up there with uh, Symphony Fantastique by okay. Hector Berlioz. That's good. Yeah, it is, it is so exciting. And for me, it's the first piece I ever played in an orchestra. And I can still remember now the very first notes, which we'll hear, they're just these huge chords. And it was magical for me, and I've been hooked ever since. And I don't listen to this piece all the time, but when I listen to it, I'm just transported to another place. He had great talent in being able to translate moods and what was going on in some of the stories musically with wonderful orchestration. Nikolai Rimsky-Korsakov, of course, the composer for Scheherazade. He was a Russian composer, lived from 1844 to 1908, born into a noble family. So this meant he had wealth, and his parents wanted him to have a well-rounded education, which included music. So he was taking these weekly music lessons, which at first wasn't very wasn't very serious. It wasn't very strict. And once he was 17, his parents thought, well, you've learned music. Time to stop. He then went out to sea for three years. It comes from a long line of military and naval service. And so from there, he spent three years, basically when he was 18 years old, exploring the world. Yeah. And what I think is fascinating about Rimsky-Korsakov is we can look at him as being a conservative Russian composer because he came from the Romantic era, the, the Russian Empire, when actually he had some very inventive ideas in his music. He expanded the things that Tchaikovsky was doing. And he himself had some sympathies for the Russian Revolution. So here was an inventive mind. So what's the actual backstory of Scheherazade? It's a collection, actually. It's a collection of stories, but overall, these stories is a framing device. Framing device is a literary device whereby there is an opening story, and the characters within the opening story discuss further stories, internal stories, and that's exactly what Scheherazade is. So we have a sultan who was um, somewhat of a tyrant. He was convinced that all women were unfaithful. He had had some experience in his, own, in his own marriage and also his brother's marriage. He came to the conclusion that women were unfaithful, and so he would marry women and then kill them the following night. Yeah. Well, Scheherazade was clever. She was a woman who thought, well, I will marry this sultan, but I will tell him a different story every night that didn't have an ending, it had a cliffhanger so that the following morning he would not be interested in uh, killing me. He would have no incentive to do so because he really wanted to find out where the story concluded or where else it was going to go. She was very clever that way. So within this framing story are these 1,001 nights, these stories that she told her husband. 
And so it wasn't until the 18th century that it was translated to English, and it was extremely popular because this was a part of the world that was unknown to the world outside of it, and people were enthralled. It was somehow magical and just so otherworldly, and it captivated readers, writers, and composers like Rimsky-Korsakov, who wrote this and premiered it in 1888. And we have four movements, and the four movements have titles to them, but we're not actually looking at super specific stories here, are we? These are kind of just general scenes, and the listener has to fill in all of the maybe blanks. Yes, these are general impressions that Rimsky-Korsakov received from these 1001 nights. But very cleverly, he puts this framing idea in the music itself. So if we have the framing story as Scheherazade reading or telling her husband, the sultan, a story every evening, Rimsky-Korsakov does a very similar thing to of that in the music. So what he will do is keep reminding us, sometimes at the beginning of these movements, not always at the beginning, but sometimes, here is Scheherazade again. Here's the Scheherazade theme. Remember, she's the one that's telling this story. And we will hear a theme, too, of the sultan. So it's a, it's a very clever way to integrate the framing story and remind all of us what's going on. And although these are general scenes... I'm definitely going to be filling in how I'm really seeing this because in my mind it's just uh, maybe I have a, an imagination of a five-year-old. I'm just always kind of dreaming and thinking about these things. So I have a lot of opinions on as to what is what. But exactly right, we have these two big themes of the Sultan and of Scheherazade that are very explicit or very subtle throughout. And right from the opening movement called The Sea and Sinbad's Ship, we get this opening, which is also the theme of the Sultan. That sounds scary. Very grim theme. It's foreboding, and it uh, it tells us about the the seriousness of the sultan and some of his cruel activities. Yeah, is the trombone included? I mean, the trombone primarily plays there. Is the tuba included in that? Oh yes, tuba right in the opening notes, and it's you just play with this huge, expansive sound. You're trying to envelop the orchestra and the audience in this sound that is huge and imposing, just like the the sultan. Well, remember that theme because he will return to it. Oh, yes. And right after that, we get to Scheherazade's theme, which is played by the violin, the concertmaster in the orchestra. And it is the complete opposite of Sultan's theme. It's so sweet and it's delicate. I wouldn't say it's vulnerable. It's confident and it's there, but it is still very, very delicate. 
Yes, and sensuous. What I think is interesting about Nikolai Rimsky-Korsakov, he brought the two of them right up front at the beginning. You know, he gives you the, the, the grim sultan, serious sultan, followed almost immediately by that, that tender, sensuous theme to show you the, the contrast between the two people who are the main characters here and who are what's going on, what, what the story is. And this movement, the sea and Sinbad's ship, so far we've had the two big themes. And we're not in the story yet, in my opinion, of the sea and Sinbad's ship. But from her solo on the violin, it goes right into this completely different scene. Perhaps we have this sailor on the ship overlooking the waters and he has binoculars and he's looking for land. Sinbad is a seafarer. He's a, a sailor, and he's represented in a few stories within the 1001 Nights. But with that particular melody that you just played right there, you can hear Rimsky-Korsakov's interest and romance with the sea. It's, it's very gentle at this point. It will get turbulent a little bit later on, but right now it's, it's sea. And so we're setting the stage now for Sinbad, who is going to be going out on the sea and seeing some very interesting things. And that's something I think is unique to... Rimsky-Korsakov and how he is able to portray the sea because he was at sea in the low strings and that example you hear kind of going up and then coming down. It's not sharp. You don't just go rocking up and down really hard in, in, in a ship like this, it sounds like. you. It's kind of very graceful in how it's um, happening. And it's sometimes really under the radar like that. And sometimes it's, it's right in your face. But Scheherazade is painting all of these different characters in these stories, which we kind of have to make up as listeners. But what Rimsky-Korsakov does so well is, for instance, when you have like a Mozart symphony and you have a melody and it goes from like oboe to horn or flute or something like that, it sounds like it's all kind of the same thing. It sounds very homogenous. But with Rimsky-Korsakov and this, the sounds are so strikingly different. These are totally different characters, although sometimes they're even playing the same line. still have that motion of the ocean and the waves. Yes, and, and with the horns, too, we can hear these little fragments of the sultan's theme coming in, but sort of in a gentle way. Sultan's theme is often just, it's right below the surface. It's like she's telling these stories and we're wrapped, we're so enraptured by them, but that's right, just below the surface, there's that reminder, if this story doesn't go well for you, if it's not told well, if it's not exciting enough... <laughs> Then it's your last story. Yes. She has to be a very clever woman. And the violin kind of is returning and there's it's kind of dancing. And in this work you'll hear it's sudden it's like soft and then suddenly it's massive in the orchestra.
It's the changing moods of of the water, of the sea. You know, one moment it's placid and idyllic, as we were hearing before, and then next thing you know, it it will whip up with the wind to turbulence. And I think that uh, he's showing that so so well in that movement. Now, there's cliffhangers, right? It's like none of the ends here. There's one ending to one of the movements that is resolute, but it's it's still kind of down there in energy. These really end, these movements, they end soft, but there's this kind of huge moment. And then there's like a minute of kind of winding down. And so we have this huge moment here in the sea and Sinbad ship towards the end. And it's like there's this conclusion that goes unresolved. And she's been telling this story all night. And now it's the daybreak is starting. And I hear we go from this story that she's telling. And then we hear daybreak and a trill in the flute. It's like a, a bird song in the morning. It's so subtle, but in my mind, that's what I hear. It's like, oh, and then this happened, and then, then, oh, what do you know? The sun's coming up. Yeah. And then it ends, like a lot of the movements, it just ends very, very soft. Maybe like relief that it's like, well, I get another day. He'll let me live to tell the end of this story. Yes, and the suspense that that the sultan may have had is also reflected in that music. Yes, So the sea and Sinbad's ship, a lot of characters told there. It's all kind of up to me and you, the listeners, to figure out what it means. And I'd say listen to it a lot of times because you – it's like watching a great movie. You catch something new every time. And maybe you thought an instrument was a certain kind of character. And then maybe after the fourth or fifth listen, you realize, well, maybe there's something different about that one. Yes, and nowadays in our culture, we have visual ways to to experience things with music. But back then, there was not as much visual. So in music, he was portraying, for example, Sinbad's adventures with the with the strange birds he would see while he was out on the ocean and the strange fish. And in fact, he lands on an island that is the back of a whale. So um, we have to sort of, as you say, see this in our imagination by the music. And back then, you had to see it live. We don't, we don't have Spotify, and you know, they didn't have all of that. So we get to the, the second movement, the story of the Calendar Prince. And within the 1001 Night stories and saga, there's several of these Calendar Princes. So again, it's very general here, but it's someone who, although a prince faced a lot of adventure or, or battles, or they had a very exciting life. It wasn't a prince just living in a castle doing nothing. Yes, and by legend, a calendar prince is someone who was a prince but now has become a wanderer and a wandering mystic in some stories, for whatever reason, lost his position as a royal royal, and okay. is, is not living in luxury but now is wandering. And uh, as you say, uh, Scheherazade, well, the 1,001 nights that are included within it, mentioned the calendar prince a couple of times. And so what we're hearing here in this particular movement is almost a compilation or a composite of the various calendar princes that appear. I like that. And I really like the the opening to it. 
This one, again, starts with Scheherazade in the violin. But the way it's posed at the beginning, it's almost like a question. It's now the next night, and they've returned to whatever. I see this kind of grand room with a fire, that, a very nice, I don't know, ornate couches and, and art and everything. And a beautiful she, rug, probably. Yes. She's like, ah, where were we? Now, where were we? Where were we going in this story? And again, the framing device. So Rimsky-Korsakov is reminding us in this second movement, okay, I just want to remind everybody we've got this framing story here of the Sultan and Scheherazade, and I'm going to remind you of it just right off the top there with that with that lovely evocation of, of Scheherazade. And pretty much everyone, almost everyone gets to be a soloist in this work. I mean, basically all of the woodwinds, the brass, everyone has a unique character to, to display and one that happens right from the beginning, towards the beginning of this one, of the Calendar Prince, is the bassoon. Now with you talking about them having to be a wanderer or just kind of adrift to the world, I hear that solo in a totally different light now. He's wandering. That's exactly what the bassoon is doing. And you're right. This particular movement is a tour de force for the bassoon. But we hear so many wonderful winds in this particular movement, the story of the Calendar Prince, that goes back like what you were talking about in the introduction, John, to Rimsky-Korsakov's interest in woodwinds and brass that he experienced when he was in the naval uh, academy, or not academy, but when he was uh, in the naval service. Yes. And so many different moods, as we've said. Now with the calendar prints, there's this kind of wandering aspect, but then all of a sudden it's like he goes into a, a story of a past adventure. That kind of adventure, I mean, this is from the 18, late 1800s, and you think about today when you watch like um, Pirates of the Caribbean and you have that pirate music, that wasn't just made up then. This is a centuries-old thing. This is a, as we'll hear in this, and one very famous soloist um, who has said there's only two kinds of music. There's pirate songs and uh, love songs. And... <laughs> There's a bit of truth to that, but this I you get this pirate and sense of adventure in, in a lot of these movements, but especially this one. Yes, this is the movement where I think we can really start hearing the influence of, of different cultures' music, maybe moving east a little bit toward, toward the Middle East. Um, I think we get more of a sense of this, a heightened sense of this in the story of the Calendar Prince than even that we got in the first movement with Sinbad. Yeah. And you mentioned trombone already. There's a big moment for the trombone. And just always reminding you, this sultan, the the wrath, is always pretty close by. 
And the colors are so different from every section that he brings in, whether it's the brass or the woodwinds. It isn't just, oh, this is brass, this is woodwinds. But these are just totally different characters and stories for this prince. And he integrates the woodwinds and the brass. Doesn't he integrating them within the score? Yeah. Oh, yeah. There's, And that's something he was a master at, at combining instruments in just the right way to produce a color that is totally different from Mozart or Beethoven, even though you're maybe using the same notes, even. There's these great moments for clarinet coming in. There's a lot of um, flute and piccolo interjecting as well. And this one also has a unresolved ending with it, doesn't it? Yes. So we had a pastoral sense earlier in this movement with a bassoon depicting the the wandering solo calendar prince, but now we're we're hearing a more jagged rhythm, a little bit more agitation, perhaps representing the sultan. Yeah, it's always close by, and we're just getting through bits and pieces of these, and we'll have some recommended recordings on the show notes page at classicalbreakdown.org, and. Again, it's a cliffhanger. And then the way it ends, especially this one, this one reminds me of this prince, now this wanderer. He has kind of finished this story. Maybe he's arriving somewhere that's still kind of desolate. And then out in the distance, there's something very mysterious. Maybe perhaps someone he had even killed or he thought was killed and has now come back for some kind of retribution. And then you get that Netflix continue watching button because <laughs> you have to see the next episode. One of the stories of the Calendar Prince is he tells Sinbad of a very scary account that he had where he was between two visions. On one hand was the vision of a veiled woman, a mystery, who is this woman? And on the other hand was a monstrous genie. So as you say, Somebody that he was afraid of. Maybe he's somebody who was killed and returning back to life. Maybe somebody he killed. Oh, I love it. And the next movement is beautiful. It's the prince and the princess. And we'll get to that in just a minute. First, let's take a break. Classical Breakdown is made possible by Classical WETA. Join us for the music anytime, day or night. To listen live, just go to our website, classicalweta.org, or download our app. It's free in the App Store. So the third movement, The Prince and the Princess, this one for me, I think is very special. Scheherazade's theme, that violin solo, it doesn't happen at the beginning like we've heard in the previous two movements. And we don't know who this prince is. We don't know who the princess is. It's super vague. But when I hear it, I'm basically hearing Scheherazade telling the sultan this story. Oh, there was this beautiful princess and she was magnificent and she had, or her hair was just, well, you know, it's kind of like mine. 
And then she says to the sultan, oh, and there was this prince, handsome and strong, um, a great leader. And, you know, he kind of looked like you, right? <laughs> and she's telling the story of love and also hinting at this could also be you and me, perhaps. And I just, I love it. The opening is just right away so affectionate. It's some of his most lyrical music. It's also kind of homogenous. It's just this one kind of line in the strings. Before, we've had a lot of things happening, waves, different colors and timbres. But here, it's more even. Yes. And I think that depicts um, possibly one story in the 1001 Nights about a, a prince who falls in love with a princess. But he is trying to win her love. She's resistant to it. Until she realizes that her resistance uh, might stem from jealousy she had of this prince because she kept hearing about how good and virtuous he was. But once she was able to to understand him and, and know him, she accepted that, yes, he was good, and she started to fall in love with him. It's possible that Rimsky-Korsakov was considering that type of story, too, when he made this very lyrical, beautiful um, music to the young princess and the young prince in this particular third movement. And also what's interesting, I think, in the scoring of this particular movement is the percussion, because the percussion used in the other two movements that we heard at times could get could get quite um, aggressive and strong to mirror, say, for example, a, a turbulent sea. But in this case, he uses some very gentle percussion, maybe a, a triangle or so, to evoke the gentleness of this movement. Oh, and I have, I have very strong opinions about what that means, too. But we'll get to that in a second. I love that. And it's, it's up for the listener to, to really put the details to the story. Perhaps it is the other way around. When I hear in this next example I'll play, it is the story is not being told anymore. It's kind of a break or a lull. And Scheherazade, she's kind of now just walking around the room, picking something up, putting it down. But also kind of they're taking glances at each other. comes back in with this beautiful theme, but I hear that it's so sensuous and just kind of a quick glance at each other, locking eyes. How can you not get chills listening to the clarinet doing that? It's so evocative and very sensual. And again, as you mentioned, you know, this framing device is coming in even in this third movement because Lipsy Korsakov is reminding us, yes, we're talking about a young princess and a young prince, but also remember that the sultan is part of this and Scheherazade is still part of this and she's telling him this story. Oh, yeah. And that the sweeping up and down the clarinet that you love, it comes back at again with like a different instrument, like the flute. But getting to that percussion you were mentioning, mm -hmm. to me, this is my opinion, and we can pretend it's the correct opinion for the next five minutes, but mm -hmm. that is we have the percussion comes in, and it'll, it'll be very clear when I play it for everyone. The story has stopped. 
And now the Sultan is interjecting, not in the brutish way we've heard so far, but more like, well, well, wait a second. So they're they're really in love? They're happy, but aren't they so different? Or how does it work? It's kind of he's being inquisitive, but not in this authoritative or horrible way he has before. It's like underneath that low brass exterior is a more gentle clarinet boy asking these questions. Yeah, almost playful. So are we seeing then the sultan starting to fall in love with Scheherazade here? I think he's vulnerable. He's not there yet, but he's his guard is down. It's definitely a good sign. And what I, I love her, in my opinion, is the response here that... It's very sweeping. It's, oh, yes, they're, they're so in love, they can't keep apart from each other. That's my opinion. I think you make a good uh, position. Compelling? Yeah. And this is the movement where her theme does come back in, but it's not in the beginning. It's towards the end. Do you have any thoughts? Or why do you, why do you think it comes in towards the end in this one? Because I think that the sultan hearing this story that Scheherazade is telling him about this young prince and this young princess, and he's trying to develop his love for her, and she's resistant until she learns about him, and she realizes that she was resistant because she was jealous of him, but now she starts to love him. I think now, at the end of this movement, the Scheherazade theme comes back in because we can see a parallel between the young princess and the young prince and Scheherazade and the sultan now falling in love. Okay. Now, I, I, that's the thing. I, I like that. It's... And and it's so different than even what I think about it. For me, it is almost the opposite. It's like, woe is me. It's oh yes, they're in, she's telling the story. They're they're in love and ha- life is so happy. But I guess that'll never happen for me. I'll I'll never have that. And the Sultan has to kind of say reflexively, oh no, you, of course you will. Oh well, wait, maybe not. But it's 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 more kind of internalizing or trying to sh- not manipulate but get him to see the tragedy of it. Well, that's the magic of the music is that we can interpret it so many interesting ways. Absolutely. And sometimes and again, listen to it many times and you'll have a different opinion. You know, ask me next week. I'll have a totally different Okay. <laughs> this one ends very cute and to use a word you've said a couple of times, clever. It's clever, it's cute, and it's nothing like the other ones in terms of there still could be a cliffhanger here, but it, it's very resolute. 
Yeah, yeah. It's playful and it uh, has a resolute sort of a gentle tone to it. And perhaps he does it also to juxtapose the opening of the next movement, which we can call um, the festival at Baghdad and the shipwreck against a rock surmounted by a bronze warrior or simply just the shipwreck. The sultan did not sound happy, and Scheherazade now sounds a little scared. Maybe he's not happy because he realizes he's becoming vulnerable to her. Ah, I like that, because that happens again. It comes in with this wrath of the sultan, and then kind of an even more frantic solo on the violin for Scheherazade. It's almost like, okay, I've been listening to your stories for a thousand nights now. This is over, and... She realizes now it's in this very tense, kind of frantic solo, "Uh uh-oh, this is it. Tonight is the night I have to pull out all the stops. This has to be the story of all stories right now. This festival at Baghdad is almost kind of sinister. It's not the festival I think of growing up in Florida as a um, sideshow carnival on the corner of the road. Uh, This is very different. I've heard this described as... um maybe a wedding between the sultan and Scheherazade. That this okay. foreshadows what is going to become of them. It's a in somewhat of it's somewhat of a festival. It's a little bit of a, a rougher festival, but maybe this mirrors their union. Yeah. No that that's that's a good point and I'm going to have to when I listen to it again probably later today, I'm going to think about it like that. And this one Depending on the performance, it can be blistering fast. And this is the part of the festival, as you were talking about, that has maybe a little bit of a sinister tone to it. Yeah. And, well, it continues. The Sultan theme is always there, and it can be swirling. And what he does in this movement as well is juxtapose completely different rhythms. We'll hear one part here. It's kind of hard to explain. It stays in three, but all of a sudden the tempo goes down by a lot and then jumps back up almost immediately a few seconds later. That's so hard, but it's so exciting, it's so lively, and just the way the tempos change, I'm still thinking Pirates of the Caribbean. 
Yeah, no, yeah, you can definitely tell that in in the turbulence of what's going on, and uh, and I think I think the uh, instrumentation that he uses is is rather interesting. Sometimes it's not full orchestra. There are times he'll he'll just isolate particular instruments or have maybe two groups integrate. Um, but I think the percussion that he uses, particularly in this uh, segment, is so effective. Oh yeah, I mean he knew he knew the instruments, he knew how to use them and to put them together. And you're right, it is huge orchestra. And then suddenly, chamber music. Yes. And when you're in, when you, if you ever see this, watch what's happening on stage. People are looking at each other. They're looking for movement, for a breath, and staying together. Now, Linda, who wrote "Flight of the Bumblebee"? Rimsky Korsakov. Absolutely. The funny thing is, it's actually "Flight of the Bumblebee." It's not that hard. It's very chromatic, and you can pretty much put it together pretty quickly. But that's all. To say there's this kind of bumblebee moment in this movement that <laughs> is a hundred times harder, in my opinion. I'm always blown away when I hear this. You just have to hold on tight. It's funny. I hadn't associated with that with the flight of the bumblebee before, but you are absolutely correct. But I think it's interesting, John, that in this final movement, Rimsky-Korsakov chose to combine a festival at Baghdad. And maybe it is a, a dark, has a dark tone to it, as you said, but still it's a festival, that he would combine that with the sea imagery that we saw earlier on with Sinbad, and then a shipwreck before he comes to the conclusion. Right. I'm not entirely sure how or why he kind of put these things together because they are pretty different. A festival and then a shipwreck and we've got the the sea and everything like that. Musically, it's very interesting. But what do you think? Well, I think that maybe those those elements which may, which may seem disparate, as, as you said, evoke a certain thing or, or a metaphor for the relationship between the sultan and Scheherazade. Because she has his attention now. She's been reading him these stories for 1,001 nights. With the festival, you have sort of a lighter mood, even though there are some darker overtones that you were talking about here. But usually festival is a lighter mood. So maybe now his mood is starting to lighten a bit toward her and realizing that, uh, well, not all women are in the way that I characterized them before. And But still, there's now the imagery of the sea because his emotions are unsure. Now he's becoming unsettled. So now he's determined that um, maybe he can fall in love with Scheherazade. And so there's a little bit of turbulence in him emotionally when, when he comes to realize that. So maybe that is a metaphor for the turbulent sea that we will hear in Rimsky-Korsakov's orchestration that culminates with this big cord, this big shipwreck, maybe that's when he finally has this aha moment that, you know what, I love her and I'm happy. And this shipwreck, it's very obvious. In fact, I believe Rimsky-Korsakov had at one point written into the score, this is the shipwreck on this huge cord. And we'll hear it now. It's like the music stops and there's this rogue wave that throws this ship into a rock, throwing perhaps the sultan's heart into a rock, breaking it open and realizing his, his love for Scheherazade. 
And just that chord, even the sound and the orchestration of it, it sounds like nothing we've heard so far. No, it doesn't. But there's a, there's that nice little denouement, that resolution that goes away from that chord. You know, being vulnerable is turbulent, and being in love can be turbulent. Maybe that's what is represented there. And shortly after that, Scheherazade, from this huge chord with the full orchestra and percussion, she returns with this theme again. And it's it's just, I love the juxtaposition of the huge orchestra with just the intimacy of the solo violin. It's her theme, and it's a lot of the same stuff we've heard already, but it sounds different, especially when a soloist, the concertmaster, puts a little more weight, waits a fraction of a second longer to get to each downbeat. It sounds like relief and confidence. Yeah, it's a it's a interpretation of somebody coming to a resolution in their own life. It's a human expression. It's not just an instrument. It's a human expression of somebody coming to terms with something and being resolved and and being happy. And as a human, you know, we we reach those resolutions in in maybe a little bit some variations here and there, some steps here and there. So it's it's not a particular metronomic like um, interpretation on the violin. That's the same violin, isn't it? And the same theme that we heard at the very beginning when Rimsky-Korsakov was introducing us to Scheherazade. Oh, yeah. It's just the way it can be played so subtly different where you might not you might not even notice it, but it has that effect. And right after this, the Sultan's theme comes back in. And in the opening of the piece, it was terrifying. Here, the notes are mostly the same, but it's very, very gentle, completely different. that's a peaceful triumph. It's a peaceful victory that now she has won him over with her with her stories. And he is now peaceful, knowing that he loves her and that he does not have to go through this brutal game in the, in the morning of killing her again. So now each of them can rest peacefully. Yes. And the way it ends with the violin just so high. It's the most, it's such a peaceful ending, but it's For me, it's also so stressful because especially if you know the violinist and you are just you want everything to go perfect. (laughs) And that is it's so high. It's so precarious. But it is one of the most beautiful endings for sure. Isolated, but it's a it's a human ending. It's um, not a just a, a metronome, as we were talking about. It evokes a human peacefulness at the end. It's as if now she can finally sleep. Yes. Easy. Sleep easy. (laughs) Well, that is Rimsky-Korsakov's Scheherazade. It's definitely one of my favorite works, and I've loved exploring it here with you, Linda. Is there anything else that you have for the great Scheherazade? No, I would just like to add that Maurice Ravel was a great admirer of this work, uh, Rimsky-Korsakov. He came a little bit later, of course, and uh, composed an overture. 
called Scheherazade. And then a few years after that, he composed a song cycle, Scheherazade. That's right. I'll put links to those pieces on the show notes page at classicalbreakdown.org. Well, thank you so much, Linda. Thank you for telling me all about Scheherazade. (laughs) Thank you for your thoughts, because now the next time I hear Scheherazade, I will have all of these thoughts going through my mind, and it will enhance how I hear. Perfect. Thanks for listening to Classical Breakdown. For more information on Scheherazade and this episode, visit the show notes page at classicalbreakdown.org. And if you have any comments or ideas for episodes, send me an email at classicalbreakdown at weta.org. I'm John Banther. Thanks for listening to Classical Breakdown from Classical WETA. ¶¶